Thank you for tuning in to the Lakewood Grace Podcast. We're a church in Lakewood, Washington, and whether you're listening from around the corner or from around the world, we're glad that you're here. We hope this sermon equips you to be the Christian the world needs today. If you'd like to learn more about us, head on over to lakewoodgrace.com. And now, for this week's sermon. Thank you. Hey, good morning. It is good to see you. You are in the right place. There is no other place God would rather have us to be than right here in God's house, worshiping God. So welcome. You are in the right place. Hey, to, uh, we're studying, we're going through the life of Abraham, Father Abraham. And the series is called Great Faith, Warts and All. And we've seen how this man of great faith certainly had his warts. And today we're going to be looking at um, Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. So listen now to God's word to you and to me. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham, Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached out to me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, Though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so uh, for decades, 
uh, for centuries, really, those people who doubt the truth of scriptures, <coughs> excuse me, have used scriptures like this to say, you know, you can't trust the Bible. It is untrustworthy because, come on, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone from heaven wiping out cities, that's not real. Come on, man. And the problem is, uh, for centuries we've been digging around Israel and never found anything to substantiate Sodom and Gomorrah. And so people have said, see, that's why you can't trust the Bible. That's why you can't. This is all make-believe stuff. Until 1976, Dr. Giovanni Pedinato, an archaeologist, made an astonishing discovery in a place called Ebla. This guy spent his entire lifetime, for the most part, as an academic, digging up this ancient city called Ebla. Ebla is located up in Syria modern-day Syria. And so the geography of Israel, if you know Israel, it's kind of like a rectangle. And Sea of Galilee is up here. Jerusalem is down here. The Dead Sea is here. And um, the Sodom and Gomorrah is right next to the Dead Sea, way down there. So way up in Syria, in Ebla, Dr. Pedinato found hundreds of tablets not like iPads, but, you know, the ancient stone tablets. And what he found on these tablets are inscriptions with all five cities named just like they are in Genesis chapter 10, 9, and 14, 2. In fact, in the same order as in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and Bela. Genesis 14.3 tells us that the cities were located near the Salt Sea, which today we call the Dead Sea. Now, since 1976, a number of ancient ruins have been excavated near the Dead Sea. Significantly, stones and other artifacts discovered at the site show clear evidence of intense fire and traces of sulfur, brimstone. And so all that archaeology, whenever you, what science and archaeology does is to prove the truth of Scripture. The sites since the early 1900s and all the sites they say don't exist, historians say they don't exist mainly because we haven't dug them up yet. They're all there. We just haven't found them. But over and over, archaeology and science proves that these are real. Now, these ruined cities near the Dead Sea, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebo, and Mbella, ceased to be inhabited around the end of the early Bronze Age. And guess what time historical period that is? The story of Abraham. Isn't that fascinating? Now, today, I'm going to tell you from the get-go, the question we're going to be wrestling with, and I'm going to tell you from the get-go the answer. So the question that I want us to wrestle with as we look at this text is, what's the point of prayer? Why even pray? And beneath that question is a set of questions that, uh, beneath the main question, what's the point of prayer? Why even pray? 
Because what the Bible tells us is that if you want to pray prayers that God will delightfully answer, here's what God says. If you want, if you want God to answer your prayers delightfully, then pray what God wants. So if you want God to answer your prayers, God says, pray what I want. And the question is then, hey, what the heck is the point of prayer if all you want me to do is to pray what you want? And here's what the Bible teaches us about prayer. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. The main reason why you don't have the stuff that you want is because you do not ask. And in fact, Jesus says it in, in the Gospels. He says, ask of it in my name, and that will I do in order to glorify the Father. So ask, ask. And then secondly, the Bible tells us in James 4, 3, when you ask, you do not have because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So the Bible tells us you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not have because you have the wrong selfish motives. So in order to get what, in order to get yeses from God, pray what God wants. Pray God-honoring prayers. And at that point, I'm like, dude, that, why even pray? Don't you get it, God? I want the Seahawks to win. The Mariners have never won. Come on, God. Make it happen, right? But if God wants me to just pray what he wants, why even pray to begin with? One of my favorite philosophers, Soren Kierkegaard, says, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but to change the nature of the one who prays. John Calvin, the father of our uh, Reformed tradition, says, we cannot possibly exercise true confidence in prayer except by praying God's word. R.C. Sproul says, we cannot change God. God is unchangeable. If changes are to be made, they must be made in you. Time out. If praying is ultimately about praying what God wants, I don't get it. Why even pray? What kind of deal is that? So that's what we're going to be looking at as we look at Abraham's story. And so let's begin with the nature of prayer. Here's the context. God determined to destroy Sodom because of their sins. But before destroying Sodom, God wants to share his plan with Abraham. We're told in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, why would God even bother asking that question? God's God. God can do whatever God wants. So why would God even care what Abraham has to think? You see, you don't have to explain to slaves. You don't have to explain to creatures. But Abraham isn't a slave. Abraham is a friend of God. Abraham is a child of God. And to friends and children, 
You want them to want what's best. God wants Abraham to delight in God's purposes and understand what's happening. And so before destruction comes to Sodom, God wants to explain, Abraham, this is what's going on, son. This is what's happening, my friend. And he wants Abraham on board with what God wants because Abraham isn't just a slave. He's his friend. And then listen to what God says in verse 19. This is huge. For I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. I want you to note something here. The primary reason why God chooses Abraham is so that he can teach his children about God and to do what is right. The primary reason why God chooses Abraham to be the father of faith is so that he can teach his children about who God is. And I want you to know this, that the primary responsibility for teaching the faith to the next generation is the parents. It's you. Not the church. It's you. At best, the church can supplement, come alongside what's happening at the home. And no matter what we teach those little ones for the next 40 minutes, you have them for 24-7, 365 days a year. And if we tell them that God is great and God is loving and kind and honor God, and you don't demonstrate that and model that at home, that you don't honor God, that you do not trust God, that you do not love God, and if you don't model that for the little ones at home, no matter what we teach them for the next 40 minutes, you cancel out everything that we teach over there. All that we can do is to supplement, come alongside what you model at home. You've got to model honoring God at the house. You've got to model loving God at home, loving one another at home. And unless you do that, everything we're there doing there is just a waste of time. We ought to just give them Kool-Aid and cookies and sugar them up so that you can have fun with them in the afternoon. Because unless you, get, you teach them that at your home, we can't compete with what you're showing and modeling at home. Your number one responsibility is to teach honoring God to your children. And we can't compete with you unless you model that for the little ones. And all that we can do for 40 minutes over there is to supplement what they're already seeing at the home. Now, What's at stake here? What's the difference? And here's what's at stake. God is patient, loving, kind, and merciful. God's love is infinite and his grace is free, but his patience and mercy has an expiration date. It's called judgment. Hell is real. Judgment is real. And if hell and judgment isn't real, then all that we're doing is wasting our time. You ought to just go on out of here, go home and grab lunch and do whatever you want. If hell is not real, then the cross of Jesus Christ isn't real. It doesn't make any difference. And the, and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ doesn't make a being a difference. If the hell isn't real, judgment is real, we're just wasting our time here, guys. 
R.C. Sproul says, there's only two ways God's justice can be satisfied with respect to sin. Either you satisfy it or Christ satisfies it. You can satisfy it by being banished from God's presence to hell forever. Or you can accept the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has already made on your behalf. A.W. Tozer says, the reason why God has not yet sent judgment upon this earth is to give the inhabitants the time and opportunity to repent of their sins. It is an awesome, terrifying fact. Deal with your sin now or your sin will deal with you then. Unless judgment, hell, salvation is real, we're just wasting our time. Now, the role of the righteous, this I find astonishing. The role of the righteous, guys, is that judgment is coming. God is patient and merciful and kind, but judgment is coming, and the role of the righteous is to delay God's wrath and judgment. Check this out. Abraham and God has this conversation, and God, he says, Abraham says, God, are you really going to destroy the entire city? Even if there's 50 righteous people there. And God says, of course I'm not going to destroy the city if there's 50 righteous. And Abraham says, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? If there's 10 righteous people in the city of Lakewood, God, are you going to destroy Lakewood? And God says, of course not. And so check out what the righteous do. The righteous delay the wrath and the judgment of God. You know why? God's heart is expressed in 2 Peter. I wish that not even one should perish. It is my desire that not one should perish, but everyone come to repentance. God is patient with us because God wants people to come to know him. And here's the job of the righteous. As long as they're the righteous in the city of Lakewood, in the city of UP or whatever, Tacoma, you delay God's wrath and judgment because as long as righteous people are there, they have the opportunity to proclaim the reality of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. That there, you do not have to die this way. You do not have to spend eternity in hell. Why would you do that when God's already made a plan and the plan has a name? His name is Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him. And through him, you will have eternal life. And as long as the righteous are there, they delay the wrath of God and the judgment of God because God wants everyone to be saved. Now, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah carried on with their life as if nothing mattered, completely unaware that God had reached the end of his patience, that judgment and wrath were right around the corner. Now, if you've been around the church at all, uh, when people hear Sodom and Gomorrah, we automatically think homosexuality, if you grew up in the church. I mean, that's where we get the word sodomy, is from this story. And so most people associate this wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah with, with sexual sin. But I want to tell you, and it'd be crazy. It's not like everyone in the city was 
having illicit sex 24-7 all over the place. That'd be ludicrous. God tells us why God destroys Sodom in Ezekiel chapter 16, 49 through 50. Listen to this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. God says, here's why I destroyed Sodom. Because it wasn't just the people of Sodom who were crying out for justice and mercy and holiness. It was all of Sodom. The creation itself was screaming out to me, to God, for justice, for mercy, for God's righteousness because of the wickedness. And here was the wickedness. They were arrogant. They were saying, I don't need God. I know what's best for me. Nobody tells me what's best for me. I'm the one who's the ultimate authority. You can't tell me how to live. No one can tell me how to live. They were arrogant. I don't need God. They were overfed. Consumption at the expense of others. They were overfed. It wasn't like they consumed in order to be full and to thrive. It was that they were over-consuming at the expense of others. I don't need just one TV. I need three in my house. I don't need just a new car once every 10 years. I need a new car every year. And they were over-consuming. And how much money do you need after you've been already full and God gives you more? How much more do you need? How many more cars? How many more houses? How much more are you going to consume at the expense of others? Don't you see the homeless on the streets? Don't you see the people dying of hunger? How much more are you going to consume at the expense of others when I keep giving you, America, more than enough? And you consume at the expense of others. How much more? Sodom were arrogant. I don't need God. They were overfed. They were unconcerned. Check this out. They were saying, look, I don't care what my actions do to others. It's my life. I get to choose. I don't care what consequences my actions have on others. Nobody can tell me. Nobody can tell me about masks and vaccines. I don't care what it does to other people, particularly to the most vulnerable in our society. You can't tell me what to do with my choices. These, this is my life. This is my choice. I can live the way I want. They didn't help the poor and the needy. They were haughty, arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. Now, if you read why God destroyed Sodom and you don't see the United States in 2022, you are blind. The righteous, for the sake of the righteous, God will delay his judgment. What, what does it mean to be righteous? The Hebrew word there is sadiq, the righteous, sadiq. 
And what that means is they are perfect. They are perfectly blameless, perfectly just, perfectly moral, perfectly without sin. And in fact, the word in the Hebrew implies that they don't even have the desire to do something wrong. They are perfectly righteous. Now, if you're that, raise your hand. How many of us don't even have the desire to do something bad? We are perfectly righteous, perfectly moral. And that's why the psalmist says there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3 says, 3.23 says, all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what's crazy is the Bible tells us that there are, is righteous people. In fact, in Genesis 15, 6, the reason why we're talking about Abraham is we're told in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteous. Abraham was righteous. He's one righteous dude. So how do you get there? Being righteous has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. We saw how many times Abraham messed up, right? Abraham slept with his concubine uh, instead of waiting for God to bless him through his wife, Sarah. He slept with another woman to have Ishmael. When there was a famine, instead of trusting God, he fled to Egypt and he lied to the Pharaoh about uh, his wife. He said, look, Sarah, you're so hot, people are going to kill me to get to you, so let's just say you're my sister. And so Abraham lies about his wife, Sarah, and says, and watches her get taken from him into the Pharaoh's household to become Pharaoh's wife, and Abraham was down with that. That's crazy. That's ludicrous. Abraham did horrendous things. And you're going to see he lies about Sarah again. Because when he, well, that's coming up in a week or two. He, 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 how is it that he is credited to be righteous? Here's how righteousness works. Abraham believed and the Lord credited to him as righteous. And so when you believe in God's plan for salvation, when you believe in God's plan for rescue and restoration, God credited to you as righteousness. Now, here's what that means. I, I really should have brought a blanket. I wanted to, I wanted to come with a comforter, huge king-size comforter. And the way righteousness works is when you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and accept God's plan for salvation, God blankets you covers you with Christ's righteousness. So that when you stand before God, God doesn't see Abraham who did all this stupid stuff. God sees Christ's righteousness blanketed over Abraham. And God can't help but see all that he sees is Christ's righteousness. So that when Abraham and you and I stand before God in judgment, God doesn't see your sin and mine. God sees Christ's righteousness blanketing over us. And God credits you as being as righteous as Christ because of your belief. 
The function of the righteous to delay God's wrath is the function of the church today. Because you're here, your job is to intercede and pray on behalf of the city of Lakewood, on behalf of these neighbors out there, to proclaim the day of the Lord that not one should perish because as long as there's somebody, a righteous person who is declaring the day of the Lord, who is declaring God's plan for salvation, there is hope for the world as long as there is somebody who is righteous and that's the role of the church. That's what you and I are called to do. If we love people, we intercede and warn them of the consequence of dying in their sin. Not one needs to perish. Believe in Christ. Believe and accept God's plan for salvation. All right, so let's bring this to a close. We started out with the question, what's the point of praying if God only answers prayers that he wants me to pray? I mean, that just doesn't seem right, right? If the only prayers that God delights to answer are the prayers that God wants me to pray, God, what the heck? You see, Underlying this understanding is that God is unchangeable. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. And so here's what we can say about God and prayer. Number one, God delights to hear from his children. You know, I miss the days when my title was daddy. My kids no longer call me daddy. Daddy! I want this. Daddy, can we play? Daddy, let's play Xbox. Gosh, my kid never talks like that anymore. I miss daddy conversations. And the father delights to hear, Daddy, Seahawks stink this year. Come on, come on. How about another Super Bowl run? God delights to hear our prayers. And then the second affirmation is this. Don't confuse God's delight in hearing from us with God doing what we ask of him. The two completely separate things. God delights to hear from us, but don't confuse that with God wanting to do what we ask of him all the time. So let me pose this question. You pray all the time, hopefully. And when you pray... If God answered all your prayers in the affirmative right now, what difference would that make in the world today? Would it be a better world because God answered your prayers the way you wanted? It would be for all the Seahawks fans. For the 49er fans, it would be misery, right? No! If God answered all your prayers just the way you prayed them, Would the world be a better place because God answered your prayers? What would change? And flip the whole question about why even pray if all God wants me to pray is what God wants me to pray. Listen, listen. Because God is sovereign, omnipotent, God knows all things. You and I can't see the variables of all that's happening in the world. And And if the Seahawks win the Super Bowl, everyone else in the NFL is miserable. And so how can we pray prayers where everyone is delighted, where God answers my prayer in a way, and then the whole world erupts in delight 
and elation. How can we do that? And because God is sovereign, God is good, and God is holy and omniscient, and he knows all these things, God wants only what's best for you and what's best for this world. God knows what's best for you and best for the world. And so why in the world, if that's true, if it's best for you and best for the world, why would you want anything other than what's best for you and best for the world? Why would you pray anything other than, God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? Because that's the best for me and best for everyone else in this world. And why wouldn't you pray that prayer? It'd be ludicrous to say, I want what's only best for me at the harm of everyone else. That's ludicrous. Don't confuse God's delight in hearing from you with God doing everything he asks. So we got quick takeaways. Okay, so God honoring prayers. If the request is wrong, if the request is wrong, God says no. So repeat after me. If the request is wrong, say that. If the request is wrong, God says no. So look, uh, when my high school boy was a toddler, it's amazing. I had three daughters first, and then the boy came later. And it was astonishing. Everything turned into a gun or a sword with my boy. It didn't matter. Everything was a gun or a sword. And so as a toddler, like two, three years old, he'd say, Daddy, get me a sword. And, I, and not like the play sword or a stick. He wanted a sword. It'd be ludicrous for daddy to get him a sword when he's two, three years old, right? That would be irresponsible. If the request is wrong, God says what? No. And that's, God has to say no. Second thing is, if the timing is wrong, God says wait. Repeat that after me. If the timing is wrong, say if the timing is wrong, God says what? Wait. Look, not only did he want a sword, he wanted to drive. Right? And I'd be like, dude, look, there's going to come a day when I'll buy you a car, I'll buy you gas, I'll pay for insurance. Get out of the house. I'm tired of driving you. But when you're three, dude, you can't drive my car. Wait, it's not the request is wrong. The timing's off, right? So if the timing is wrong, what does God say? Wait. And then thirdly, if you are wrong, if you are wrong, the timing may be right, request may be right, but you are not right. God says, grow. You know, for the longest time in my life, until this year, I never understood why God didn't remove the thorn in Paul's flesh. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, look, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, and three times doesn't mean just three times. Three is a perfect number. It means I kept pleading with the Lord to take it 
away from me. It's tormenting me. It's a messenger of Satan. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, Paul says, I will boast about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, delight in insults and hardship, persecution, difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And the whole time, for 50-plus years of Christian life and pastoring for 30-plus years, I never understood that passage until this year. I never understood why Paul, God didn't take that thorn. And we don't know if that was a literal thorn or a physical disease or somebody who was a pain. We don't know what the thorn was. Paul prayed about it constantly, saying, God, get rid of this. This is a torment from Satan. Satan is tormenting me. Take this away. Because I relate with Paul. There are prayers that I pray every day. God, would you please change this about me? Because this is ungodly. This is not good. Man, God, just... Take this, change me, God. I'm pleading with you, change me, change me. I don't want to battle with this anymore. Change me. And God hasn't changed it. And I'm not, and I used to think of this whole, the thorn in the flesh as a curse. But I finally get it. I finally get why God didn't remove Paul's thorn. You see, God was saying to him, grow up, son, grow up. And here's how it works. Every time Paul was reminded of his thorn, his weakness, his pain, his shortcoming, it reminded him to turn to one who was strong. His thorn reminded him of his pathetic weakness to overcome this thorn, but every time it reminded him of his weakness and pathetic condition, he was able to turn to God. It reminded him to, look, you have a Savior. Look, he is strong. He is mighty. And every time you are weak, when you look to the one who is strong, he is your strength. He is your Redeemer. And so God took what Satan was using to torment Paul to be a reminder for Paul to remember, I am weak, but he is strong. And when I am weak, I am strong because he is with me. When you are wrong, God says, grow up. And so when the request is right, timing is right, and you are right, God says, go, do it. When you're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, go, go do that. That would be awesome. I want you to do that. Go. So why pray? Because ultimately... God wants to get you, his child, his son and daughter, to delight, to delight in thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
here on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Hey, God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, man, if there's anyone in this space or watching or listening and who have not yet accepted your plan of salvation, Lord, that's crazy. That's crazy. And so if there's any of you who haven't yet received Jesus as Lord and accepted God's plan for salvation to escape God's wrath and judgment that is coming, the way you do that is to say something like this, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Forgive my sins. I receive you as Lord and blanket me with your righteousness. Credit it to me as righteous. Father, thank you so much. And we pray, Lord, that Lakewood Grace, because of Lakewood Grace, that because we proclaim your kingdom come, your kingdom here, that you would delay your wrath and judgment, that not one should perish as long as there is Lakewood Grace and the righteous there. God, you are good. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Lakewood Grace Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and then head on over to lakewoodgrace.com slash connect where you'll find a link to contact us or you can fill out a communication card. Have a wonderful week. God bless.